when I preach, um, particularly on topics like politics, I'm essentially talking to three groups of people. One, I'm talking to a group of people who I call the choir. And I really need to hear from the choir today. Meaning, I am basically confirming and affirming things that you hold to be biblically true. I'm also talking to a group of people who will oftentimes disagree, push back. And what I need you to do is I need you to focus not on popular opinion, what you've taught, believed, so on and so forth. But really focus in on what scripture has to say, what Jesus has to say. Because we are followers of Jesus and we anchor ourselves in what God says. So to your best of your ability to, to, to listen with an open mind. And then there's a third group of people, that, which I need to mention today. And that is I'm actually talking to the group of people that you will eventually talk to. I've gotten lots of emails this week saying, I sent the link to your sermon to my family. My brother, my sister, my mom. You're laughing. My dad, so on and so forth. And instead of just doing that, here's what I would love, right? Here's what I would love. I would love for you to somehow digest this material so that you can be an articulator of the gospel truths of politics to your family and friends. You see what I'm saying? So I need you to pay attention, not just with yourself, but with a different audience. And I almost hate saying that because it's one of the pet peeves of mine. When someone's sitting there going, oh, so-and-so, listen to this, or so-and-so. It's it's a pet peeve of mine because we need to listen, first and foremost. But uh, today I want to say that. So with that, let me launch in and and finish this. Some of you who are Facebook friends with me, I did say that I was going to offend some people today. And so I was actually thinking no one was going to show up, but um, always <laughs> we're used to it. Um, it's really easy to filter Jesus through the lens of partisan politics rather than filtering politics through the lens of Jesus. It's really easy during this season to get caught up in, in, in looking at Jesus through the lens of politics. Oh, oh. Rather than looking at politics through the lens. And, and here's what you'll find. You ready? And this is where we're going today. When you filter politics through the lens of Jesus, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that Jesus is way more political than you ever thought. But not in the way that you think. Jesus is way more political than you thought. Not even remotely close in the ways that we think. Here's here's where we were last week, and I just need to briefly recap and as we launch in. I encourage all of us that we need to be more political, not less. We need to be more political and not less. Uh, uh, We we defined word politics. I, I said there's a difference between politics and partisanship. Partisanship is about parties and candidates and platforms and all the stuff that you and I are sort of turned off by. But the word politics, when we look at the original root of that word, we realize that it has powerful implications for those of us that are Christians. We said last week that the word politics comes from two Greek words, polis 
and polite, meaning city-states and citizens. So politics, by the way, those of you who paid attention during Philosophy 101 in college know this. Politics, in its essence, is about how a group of people, citizens, choose to organize their communities. It's how we choose to live together. It's about what we agree to do with our shared resources, whether it be building schools or, in countries, building armies. Politics, in its most simple definition, in its original definition, is the art of being a citizen in the city state that you live in. That's what politics is. Politics is the art of being a citizen, or what I would say, being a good neighbor in the community, the country that you live in. So with that, let me ask you, does the Bible have anything to say about being good neighbors in the communities and countries we live in? Answer? The Bible is filled with implications for what it means to be a good neighbor in the neighborhood, community, the country that we live in. You can't read the Bible a couple pages without coming across passages like this. Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, 7. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. And Luke chapter 10, verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It is critical for a follower of Jesus to know what it means to be a good neighbor in the community, cities, countries we live in. And a big part of that, as we talked briefly last week, involves political process. That is, we care about who we elect. We care about the legislation they pass. Why? Because who we elect and the legislation they pass has ramifications for millions of our neighbors. Millions of our neighbors. So Christians ought to be the most informed of what's going on. Secondly, we also said, though, that the character in which we engage politically matters. Is our political engagement Christ-like? I hate social media. It turns us into jerks. It turns us into nasty jerks. And before we, you know, comment or link, do we ever pause and think and, and ask the question, is what I'm about to say to the strategy, is it Jesus? like is it christ-like church is our engagement christ-like are we any different do you pray for those you disagree with do you pray for those people that you disagree with do you ever confess and admit your biases and the fact that you might not have you know perfect knowledge of truth Can we disagree in new community, at least, to call each other out when we act not like Jesus in this regard? If you're self-righteous, judgmental, vitriolic in your speech and your engagement, you do not understand the gospel. If you think that the enemy is out there when, in fact, the enemy is in here, you do not understand the gospel. If you think that people who are on the other aisle is hopeless, you do not understand the gospel. We also said that the question isn't, is God on our side, but are we on God's side? Oh, boy. Are we about God's agenda? Are we more about God, what God cares about? And I pointed out last week, 
Why is all of our political discourse around the middle class when the Bible has very little to say about the middle class? Shouldn't the moral imperatives of the kingdom of God, shouldn't the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Matthew 5 to 7, shouldn't that dictate and guide what we care about? And when you look at the Bible, it says a whole lot of things about the poor, justice, reconciliation, the least of these. I just asked us to pause and to set our minds on Jesus. Because I tell you, when we lose our focus on Jesus, listen please, when we lose our focus on Jesus, we start talking a whole lot about things that Jesus really talked about. And we avoid talking about things that Jesus talked a whole lot about. And lastly, I said this. I said, where we play a hope on matters... <laughs> Can I get an amen? On November 9th, when you get up, regardless who's in the office, the grave is still empty. The kingdom of God will still advance. Regardless who's sitting on the Oval Office, Jesus Christ still sits on the throne. And I'm not saying that to turn a blind eye in justice or be naive. Trust me, I am like the furthest thing from being naive. My only question to you is, is your hope ultimately in some political party or is it in Jesus? Do you realize that this is one of the most powerful ways that we could witness the world? Think about it. We live in an anxiety-ridden, fearful country. Do you have any different disposition? Are you a non-anxious present in your workplace? When people freak out, it'll be okay. Not because you're naive. Not because you're indifferent. Because Jesus. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 is, is where we're going to be and where we're going to finish today. I'm sorry, I, I wish I could... Uh, you know, spent four weeks on this, but uh, I can't. And you can't, I don't think, handle four weeks of this. So we, we need to just do two and then move on. All the Gospels have this account. Jesus has just cleansed the temple. And we find in Mark chapter 12, verse 13, starting this interaction. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Pharisees and Herodians are two opposite ends of the political spectrum. And I'll tell you why in a little bit. The land of Palestine at this time is under the rule of the Romans. And the Jews are essentially captives in their own country. And there are some Jews who went willingly, quite willingly with, with, with the current status quo because they were able to profit considerably. And they included tax collectors and other Jews like Herodians who had a stake in the fact that the government and the political scene was stable. There are others, though, who resisted Roman rule. And these included Pharisees and other Jews. Now, they did it partly because taxation was unbelievable. Like 80%, according to some scholars, people were being taxed. But there were other religious reasons why the Pharisees and other Jews resisted Roman rule. And that was, they said, we are not going to be subjected ultimately to some Gentile ruler. Our allegiance ultimately is to our king, Yahweh. So they resisted Roman rule based on those reasons and said, we refuse to give this guy our tribute. 
Verse 14, they came to him and said, teacher, well, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? The tax that they're referring to was what was called a head tax. A head tax was a tax that was levied on subjected people, not Romans, subjected people. And it was an annual tax of one denarius, which is a small amount. So it's not the amount that mattered, but what it symbolized. What it symbolized was the privilege of being subjects of Caesar. It was the ultimate way of paying tribute. And when it was first instituted, there was an armed revolt led by a guy named Judas the Galilean. By the way, author Luke mentions this in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people to revolt. He was killed and all of his followers scattered. So here's what Judas did when he came on the scene. He did three things. One, he called all the Jews to refuse to pay the tax. He said, do not pay the tax if you are a good Jew. Secondly, he went and cleansed the temple with his armed band. Third, he said, we're going to let God be king and not Caesar. We're going to usher in the kingdom of God. Well, what happened to Judas? He was promptly executed and all of his followers disbanded. It's 25 years later. And some carpenter comes on the scene. And he starts talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. That's all he talked about. Secondly, he's just gone and cleansed the temple. Well, there's only one thing missing to this armed revolt. What do you think of the head text, Jesus? Should we pay or shouldn't we? What are they asking? They're asking, are you the next Judas the Galilean? Are are you going to usher in a revolution where we're going to overthrow these filthy Romans and usher in the kingdom of God? Now, so here's the problem or the trick that Jesus, or the trap that Jesus is in. And you think, well, well, what's the big deal? He's just going to offend some and not offend. No, no, no. There's much more at stake. What is at stake? Well, here's what's at stake. If he says, don't pay the tax, what's going to happen to him? He's going to be crushed by the Roman authorities because he's going to be accused of being another armed revolt. But here's the bigger problem. If he says, go ahead and pay the tax, he faces an even bigger issue. What is the bigger issue? Jesus has built this entire teaching around the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. So any Jew who paid attention to him say, hey, go ahead and pay the tax, would have thought he's just blown smoke. We can't take him seriously. Why? See, when you and I, I said this last week, hear the word kingdom of God, we in the West modernize it, and we contextualize it as something that's spiritual. Kingdom of God means peace in my heart. But nobody in Jesus' audience, when they heard kingdom of God, thought, peace in my heart. You know what they heard? They heard, we're going to overthrow these filthy Romans, and we're going to bring in. That's what they heard. Now, as I said last week, the Jews were misguided as to who and how the kingdom of God was about. But here's what they understood. It was going to deal with real injustice, real oppression, real hunger, real issues. So I said this last week. I'm going to say a little more this week. When you listen to Jesus, you realize that Jesus' message were as political as they are spiritual. Jesus' message are as political as they are spiritual. What do I mean? You cannot read the Gospels and go, Jesus came to give me peace in my heart. 
Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, which is restoration of all things. It was going to deal with real injustice, real oppression, real hunger, real issues that impacted the structures and systems of the day. Jesus came preaching. That's why when somebody goes, why are you preaching on politics? Just stick to, you know, preaching about the gospel. I can't because Jesus didn't. You can't read Jesus and what he said and did and come to that conclusion. Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom of God. Jesus was just as interested in transforming people's hearts as he was in transforming structures, systems. And again, for somebody going, where did, look at how he treated women. Look at how he treated the least. Look, look at what Jesus did to upend social structures and customs. So with that in mind, let me ask you, church, today. Are these matters spiritual or political or both? Protecting the lives of the unborn as well as lives of millions and millions of children who live in desert poverty. Is it political, spiritual, or both? Immigration. Reform, political or spiritual or both? I mean, I could go on and on and on. They're both. If you don't think they're both, your faith is rather neutered and inconsequential to real life. What'd you say, Josh? Don't hold back. I, I, yeah. <laughs> It has to be both. Amen, church? If we stick to just saving souls, our faith becomes anemic. If we stick to just saving souls, which absolutely is important, and reconciling sinners to God, if we stick to just saving souls and do nothing about the world we live in, our faith becomes inconsequential. It literally means that we do not love our neighbors well. And I ask you this question. If we as followers of Jesus do not love our neighbors well, are we really followers of Jesus? See, the dilemma Jesus is in, though, if he says, yes, pay the tax, he loses all credibility. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, he's crushed. What happens? Jesus, though, we keep reading, knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image, the Greek word is icon, whose icon is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And what's the response, church? See, when you ask a politician a question today, what do they do? They never answer it. Drives you crazy. Jesus gives an answer. And the response, they're amazed. Why are they Amazed. To, the, to their question, Jesus, of course, does this. He asks them another question. Whose image, or a Greek word is icon, whose image is on this coin? That's, by the way, the key that unlocks this whole thing. Whose image is, and whose inscription? Let me show you a picture of what a denarius look like. There it is. See, have one of these, okay? So the inscription was Tiberius Caesar, the Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription said, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. Tiberius, son of God. There it is. So Jesus is holding one of these things. And he says, well, whose image is on it? Caesar's. 
Well, it's his. By the way, the coin was literally his. What do I mean? All the coins were minted out of his wealth. So literally, it all belonged to Caesar. So Jesus going, it's his, right? Yeah, it's his. Well, give it to him. Give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? Give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? Implication? Let me put this up there. Be engaged politically. But don't put your hope in political engagement. Be engaged politically. What do I mean? Jesus is talking to two groups of people. He's talking to two groups of Jews. The Essenes and the Zealots. Here's who the Essenes were. The Essenes were a group of people who said, this whole politics stuff, it's like some of us before the sermon series, it's just dirty, messy. It's not about saving souls. I don't want to deal with it. And Trump and Hillary both. And what they did was they just said, we're not going to engage at all. We're just going to withdraw. So they completely withdrew from society. Literally went into the desert. Anybody here have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Ancient documents that were found. Way out in the desert. They're written by who? The Essenes. So these are people who said, I'm not going to deal with that at all. I'm not just. And they just withdrew. The other group of people Jesus is talking to were the zealots. The zealots were the militant wing of the Jewish community. These guys said, we're going to take... We're going to take power politically. Use force if necessary. Use violence if necessary. And Jesus in saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, beautifully spoke to both of them. How? To the Essenes, he's saying, hey, hey, all aspects of creation, all aspects of creation has been tainted by sin. And I need my followers to bring redemptive kingdom values to all aspects of creation. And that includes your culture, including politics. And Jesus is saying to the zealots, though, and this is very important. Do not put your hopes on a political party, a political candidate, or a political platform. Do not put your hopes in some political revolution to bring about change. Political power is not ultimate. You can't bring about the kind of changes our world needs through political means. Don't be seduced into thinking political powers are ultimate. It's penultimate. By the way, have we not seen what happens to a country when a group of people put their hopes, when a group of Christians put their hopes in a political party to bring about change? Are we not living the consequences of what happens when a Followers of Jesus says, here's the solution. We're going to elect Christian politicians who will enact Christian legislation and, you know, bring about a Christian nation because then everything will be okay. Is there anything more destructive than what happened, oh, 30 years ago? When some Christians shacked up with the political party and gave birth to what I would call a destructive, toxic, pseudo-Christian movement called the moral majority. And if you don't know what a moral majority is, Google is your best friend. Don't do it right now, by the way. (laughs) I know some of y'all like moral majority. Here's the 
reason why. Here's the reason why. Because it's that toxic alliance, and I'm not for any parties. You know that. That toxic alliance gave birth to two lies, and that is that God is American, and that America is Christian. It's, it's, no, 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 listen, listen, please. I'm not attacking any party. Those are unbiblical. It's that mindset that says God is American that gave birth to the myth of American exceptionalism. God doesn't love countries. He loves people. John 3, 16, for God so loved America. I don't think so. God loved the world that he gave his only son. Okay, so I, I'm going to go there then, okay? I, I'm going to go there. So those who say that America is Christian, I ask, was America ever Christian? Ooh, it's hot in here. Was America ever Christian? I know that some of the founding fathers were followers of Jesus, but there are others who were more accurately called deists, and there are others who didn't believe at all. To say that our country is a Christian nation is stretching the truth a little bit, yeah? Don't take my word for it. Take John Adams, one of the founding fathers who wrote, the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Do you know why I, I, I just bring this up? I know I'm preaching to the choir and all you're furiously going, I need to send this to my grandma and my grandpa and blah, blah, blah. Listen, why this is so important? Because when you look at history, when Christians came into political power, Christianity died. The times in which Christianity flourished was when Christians were a persecuted minority. Look at the world today and see where Christianity is flourishing. It's flourishing in places like China. It's flourishing in countries and places where Christians are not in political power, but they're marginalized, weak, and persecuted because it's in those environments that God shows up. So the last thing we want in this country, if we are followers of Jesus about the kingdom, is to have Christian leaders who will bring about a Christian nation because that means the death of Christianity as we know it. I know that's strong, isn't it? But give to God what, what is God's. But give to God what is God. What's he saying there? Give to Caesar. This is, you guys, this is just so, and I, I know it's hot in here. It's going to get a little hotter, by the way. Just, just want to, just take a couple deep breaths, okay? Just, <sighs> but give to God what is God's. This is, this is, this is, give to Caesar. Listen, listen, look, look, look. Give to Caesar what has his image on it. But give to God what has his image on it. God, give to Caesar what is his image, but give to God what is, no, well, Jesus, what has God's image on it? 
Say it. Jesus is saying there's a higher authority than Caesar. It's God. The implications of that is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. Because what Jesus is saying is this. You ready for this? You ready for this? He's also saying implications. Don't just accept an unjust, oppressive system. Resist it. Oh, man. I'm going in, CC. I'm going in. CC, I'm going in. CC, I'm going in. <laughs> when Jesus originally asked the question, should we give to Caesar? The word give literally is pay someone as in a gift, right? Give someone as a gift. When Jesus answers the question, though, he changes the words. He doesn't say pay. He says render. King James Version, render. That's a good word. Render. And render is not pay or give someone as a gift. Render is pay back someone what they deserve. So Jesus is saying, give Caesar what it is. Caesar's a, but, but, but pay Caesar. Well, well, what, what does Caesar deserve? Well, doesn't he deserve some resistance as well? Doesn't when a government or a ruler continue to perpetuate an oppressive, unjust government, doesn't he also deserve some resistance? This is the first time in history that someone was actually calling for what we call a limited government. Think about this. Up until this time, all governments are totalitarian. All governments say God and us were the same. God and us we rule in God's name. God in us. Do not question us. Do not challenge us. Jesus comes along and says, don't you dare give any governing ruler that authority. God is a higher authority. When anybody makes totalitarian claims on you, when a government perpetuates unjust, oppressive systems, resist it. Resist it. And many scholars think this is where Jesus was giving birth to a tradition in Christianity. And that is civil disobedience as an act of political engagement. Civil disobedience as an act of political engagement. We have history of the early Christians who resisted oppressive, unjust Roman rule. We have, in our country, the Boston Tea Party. We have, as late as the 40s, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and those who opposed Nazism. And we have the Hungarian freedom fighters in the 1950s. History is filled with people who looked at totalitarian, unjust, oppressive governments and said, there's a higher authority. We're going to resist it. And of course, Dr. King. Dr. King is the most recent modern example. Dr. King passionately reminded Christians, literally these were his words, we have a moral responsibility to hold governing authorities, systems, and structures accountable. He said, you and I, the church, we're the conscience of the state. We're the guide. We're the critic of the state. With Bible in one hand and constitution in the other, Dr. King led the way in fighting for justice, oftentimes through civil this obedience. So I'd like to clear something up if you will just give me two minutes, okay? Say, it's okay, Peter. Because there are people today who are criticizing the public protests happening all across the country over the unjust killings of our black and brown brothers and sisters. There are some people in this country, 
Christians who are uncomfortable with the idea that people seem to be, I put this in quotes, breaking the law or are being disruptive in order to bring attention to injustice. And what's killing me is that they use Dr. King to say, please be law-abiding citizens. Please, I could understand your desire to protest injustice, but do it in an orderly fashion. You know, like Dr. King. The problem with that is, is that Dr. King broke the law a lot. The problem with that is, he was arrested 30 times between 1955 and 1965 for leading marches and demonstrations that were deemed unlawful. Many were beaten and killed for it. And if Dr. King was alive today, I would like to say to these people, he would be right there marching alongside those who are protesting because he said it is our moral responsibility to hold governing authorities accountable. And I think he would be called disruptive, divisive today. Let me go in a little further. Dr. King also said that the Ku Klux Klan were not the greatest obstacle to the advancement of black people. But the greatest obstacle was what he called the white moderate. And if you want a skating assessment of what he called the white moderate, I encourage you to read the letter from the Birmingham jail. White moderate is someone who is more concerned with order than is with justice, he said. White moderate is someone who says, I agree with you, and the goal that you seek, but I cannot agree with you in your methods of direct action. I just want to read a brief quote from an not often, by the way, cited sermon speech he gave called The Other America. This is what he said. It would be morally irresponsible for me to do that, that is, criticize those who are protesting, without at the same time condemning the contingent, intolerable conditions that exist in our society. These conditions are the things that cause individuals to feel that they have no other alternative than to engage in violent rebellions to get attention. I must say tonight that a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. It has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice and humanity. And my question to all of us tonight is, are you and I more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice and humanity? Do we ever ask, what are the conditions that's causing individuals to feel that they have no other alternative than to engage in protest to get attention? My question to you today simply is this. Who will you stand with? Are we going to stand with those who are saying, be law-abiding citizens? I could understand why you want to protest, but do it in orderly fashion. Or will we choose to stand with our brothers and sisters suffering, crying out for justice? And can I mention one thing? You do not have the option to say, I'm going to be neutral. 
Desmond Tutu said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you're neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. Far too many of us can your pastor say are neutral. And the challenge of that is this. The challenge of that is I am convinced that justice will not be served until those of us who are not affected care as much about justice as those who are being affected. Justice will not be served until those of us stand in solidarity with those who are hurting and who are the recipients of injustice and say enough is enough. And I always ask those of you that have the courage to be a part of new community this question all the time. Do you have any significant relationships with anybody who is being affected by what's happening in our culture? Do you hear their stories? And to which you go, well, why is it important? Because you will not care about the situations they're in unless you actually care about their people. Church. When what impacts them impacts us. If you're truly an ally of someone and you're not getting hit by the things that they're getting hit by, maybe you're not standing close enough. Because if you're standing close, when they hurt, church what? You will hurt. When they mourn, you will what? You will mourn. And when they suffer, you will what? You will suffer. So where does this leave us? If you think that your pastor is going to leave you there and go, so go do it and not talk about Jesus, come on, you know me. Because can we just be clear here? Justice without Jesus is lifeless. Can I say that again? Justice without Jesus is lifeless. The only battering ram that could remove and destroy hell on earth is not the cry of justice. It's the name of Jesus. So don't you dare think that I'm preaching some social gospel. I'm preaching Jesus. Where do we see it? We see it in verse 15. We see the kind of revolution that's going to change the world. Verse 15, give me a denarius. Two people claiming to be king. Church, check this out. Two people claiming to be king on the world stage. One says, I am king, son of God. The other says, I am king, son of God. But look how different they are. One has all the coins in the world. The other doesn't even have a quarter to his name. How does he get this started? Jesus goes, Oh, I don't even have a quarter. Somebody got a quarter? Somebody got a quarter? Give me a quarter. Do you know what he's saying? Jesus is not saying, hey, elect me because I'll make a better Caesar. 
Hey, elect me because, you know, I'm going to be a better king over a better kingdom. You better be fooling yourself if you think that's going to happen. That's why Hillary nor Donald will transform this country in the way it needs to be transformed. Can I get an amen? Amen. I know you don't believe me, but can I get an amen anyway? (laughs) I just asked them to do the thing that they hate the most, which is I ain't going to say something I don't believe in. Jesus is saying, I am an utterly different king, bringing about an utterly different kingdom. Do you know why that's important? Do you know why that's important? Because according to Michelle Alexander, last quote, I promise, church, I hate reading a lot of quotes. Last quote, Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, a woman who's been working 20 plus years in the criminal justice system, mass incarceration. This woman has worked 20 years on this issue. And this is what she said most recently. Solving the crisis we face isn't a matter of having the right facts, graphs, policy analysis, or funding. I no longer believe we can win justice by filing lawsuits, fixing our political mu- uh, flexing our political muscles, or boosting voter turnout. Yes, we absolutely must do that work, but none of it, none of it, not even working for some form of political revolution will ever be enough on its own without a moral spiritual awakening. Everybody say it with me. Without a moral, spiritual awakening, we will remain forever trapped in political games fueled by fear, greed, and hunger for power. In Luke 6, Jesus tells us exactly why no form of political revolution, not Democrats, not Republican, not the right, not the left, not Hillary, nor the other guy will ever be able to bring on its own. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus lists four values. These are value systems of the world. Power, success, recognition, and comfort. Power, success, comfort, recognition. And here's what Jesus says. There's a dividing line between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. He says, everybody out in the world is out for those things. They idolize those things. Can you put that up there and just leave that up there? They idolize those things. They live for those things. They, 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 they make their decisions left on those things. And they despise people without them. You see why nothing ever changes in our world? No monopolic revolution? Because what happens? One group says, we want the power. We want the status. We want the recognition because we've been excluded. So what happens when they get into power? What happens? They exclude, they marginalize those who excluded them, those who disagree with them. So on and on. We want the power. We get into power. We don't care about you. We want the power. We get the power. We don't care about you. It's just rearranging the furniture. Why? It's all games filled by greed, power for money, and fear. And then Jesus comes along. Look how utterly different this guy is. What kind of a king is this? What kind of a king is this? He doesn't even have a quarter to his name. What kind of a king is this who comes and says, I'm going to give my wealth away to make others rich? What kind of a king is this who says, I have all the power and authority of the heavens, but I'm going to leverage it. How? By wrapping a towel around my waist and serving the least of these. What kind of a king is this whose climax of his kingship and career is not when he gets elected, but when he gets executed? What kind of
kind of a king is this who's building a kingdom not on oppressing people, but setting the oppressed free? What kind of a king is this that isn't about crushing people, but on loving people? What kind of a king is this who says, you enter my kingdom not by power, fame, money, or status, by simply admitting that you're broken and you need him? What kind of a king is this that says, it's not your morality, achievement, and your credentials, but it's the prostitutes, it's the failures, it's the messed up people who understand the gospel. And church, check this out. You want to know what will change this country? Jesus says, and check this out. I have millions and millions and millions of followers who have been transferred out of that kingdom of power, recognition, money, and success. And they've transferred into a wholly different kingdom where they no longer live for power, recognition, success, and fame. They've radically embraced kingdom values of dying to self, carrying the cross, and following him. Millions of followers of mine who have turned the world's value system up on its head. And they actually live a life of self-denial and embrace, check this out now, ready? Kingdom values, here they are. Humble servanthood, costly sacrifice, radical love. Kingdom values, humble servanthood, radical sacrifice. Costly, radical love and self-denial. Can I ask you something? You say you're a Christian? I say I'm a Christian. Power, recognition, success, fame. Humble service. Radical sacrifice, costly love, self-denial. Do you know what would happen to this country if Jesus' followers embraced kingdom values and went out into their family, community, city, and country? Here's what will happen. Just go through these real quick. You'll live where it will do the most good, not just where it's the most comfortable. Uh, Can I just say, comfort and convenience are not kingdom of God values. Comfort and convenience are not kingdom of God values. Can we please stop making decisions on what's comfortable and what's convenient? Maybe it's just me, but maybe when I read the Bible, it's meant for followers of Jesus to endure persecution, hardship, suffering, and even death in his name. Maybe Jesus modeled for us. Not wanting to suffer is human. Not thinking we deserve to is unchristian. Secondly, you don't pursue a career based on what will give you status, but what will do the most good. Why are you going to grad school? Why that grad school? It hurts some people. Why you get that job? Why that company? Why that city? Because it will do the most good or it'll give you status. Third, you don't define success in terms of what benefits you, but what benefits others. Fourth, you don't hoard wealth to support a lifestyle that makes you feel significant, but you're radically generous. How generous are you? You know what's in our vocabulary today that didn't exist 20 years ago? The word upgrade. 
There was a time when we didn't upgrade our television. It broke, and we bought a new one. Are you using your funds for kingdom purposes? Or to, you know, upgrade? Lastly, I could go on for like ever, but just one more. You leverage whatever power you have, not to advance your own agenda, but humble service to the least of these. I have said this over and over again. Having power in itself is not a bad thing. Jesus had all the power in the universe. It's how you use it. How you leverage it. Cece, come on up. So as I wrap this sermon series, what would happen to our country? What, forget, what would happen to our city if you and I, just us, just two, three hundred, if just us today went out into our neighborhoods and families and lived kingdom values? You know what would happen? We don't have to guess. We know what happened first 200 years of Christianity when followers of Jesus resisted Roman Empire and lived their lives out. They changed their world. Two reminders and then I'm done. One, justice without Jesus is lifeless. Say it with me. Justice apart from Jesus is lifeless. Say it with me again. Justice apart from Jesus is life. Please do not confuse the cause of Jesus with the person of Jesus. Please do not confuse. Don't, don't, don't listen to me. Get up, get up and say, well, just blah, blah, blah. Do not confuse the cause of Jesus with the person of Jesus. Jesus Christ is not a cause. He is a person to be loved, to be adored, to be worshipped. Truth be told, some of us could be perfectly happy being about the cause of Jesus without having Jesus in the picture at all. Justice apart from Jesus is lifeless. Please prioritize Jesus and let him be your motivation to live your life out. Can I get an amen? Do not pursue justice apart from Jesus. Secondly, focus your eyes on Jesus. Focus your eyes on him. What do I mean? Why is he a king without a quarter to make a political statement? Why is he a king without a quarter? For your sake. For my sake. For our sakes. For our sakes. And that's the thing that blows my mind. We don't have, at the center of Christianity, a savior who rides on a white horse, you know, conquers military and oppressive system, and saves people. We have a savior who dies so I can live who becomes poor so I could have the wealth of God's acceptance, who becomes rejected so I could be recognized by my heavenly Father. We do not have a Savior who says, I will by my might. We have a Savior who says, I will lay down my life. And yeah, recognition 
You realize Jesus dies of anonymity? He has no friends. Even his father turns his away, his face away. Jesus dies of anonymity. You and I are so desperate to have people recognize us. We are so desperate to have people go, oh, I think you're good. We are so hungry to have people go, I see you. I recognize you. The only way you'll be set free from that is when you know Jesus became anonymous so that God could recognize. It's when you see this Savior and only when you see this Savior giving his wealth away, leveraging his power, becoming excluded for our sake. Will you be humble enough to talk to someone who disagrees with you and not be a jerk? It's only when you see this Savior will you have the motivation, not out of self-righteous anger for justice, but out of humble servanthood that says, he did that for me, and I'm going to do this for you. It's only when you and I fix our eyes on Jesus that we will be freed from the enslaving powers of power, recognition, success, status. And lay down our lives in humble servanthood, self-denial, radical sacrifice, costly love. I'm done. Let's pray. Your pastor is, is a fool because I actually believe that it doesn't take an army. If God could use 300 of Gideon's men, he says, I don't need thousands. I just need, if God could use 12 uneducated fishermen. See, I am foolish enough to think that a group, a church, a small, tiny church like ours, just a few hundred people, I actually believe that we could change this city for the gospel. I actually hold on to that hope. I did 14 years ago when I started this church, and I hold on to it today. But the way we change it is by unswervingly holding on and fixing eyes on Jesus, our King. Radically living into His kingdom values. That's how we do it. That's how we do it, church. Are you with me? So let me give you a minute just to pray. As you reflect on this, allow the Holy Spirit to speak. I'm going to shut up. And I'm just going to ask CC and the worship team to come on up and help us with a song of response. God, I did my part. Holy Spirit, do your part. Do your part.